This evening, Peter, we uh, will preach from Exodus 4. It's a long chapter, but now Susanna will read part of it uh, from verse 1 to verse 17. Thanks, Susanna. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs, or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. So do open your Bibles to uh, page 60 if you've got a church Bible, or 59, somewhere around there. And we're going to dive straight into a bit of Leviticus. Want to look at, uh, sorry, Leviticus, Exodus. Want to look at lots of text tonight. Um, always a question, uh, I'm going to be preaching next Sunday evening, uh, when you've just got 
a couple of sermons, what to preach on, and of course you can choose a really short book and then all the short books get done uh, quite regularly, or you can choose a long book and just do the first chapter and maybe the second. So I thought, why not dive in a little bit after things have begun uh, with uh, the book of Exodus. So as you can look at a bit of chapter three and a bit of chapter four today under the title, Making Excuses to God, because uh, this is a conversation between God and Moses, and Moses is making all sorts of excuses for why he shouldn't do the task that God wants him to do, which is to bring his people out of Egypt. So just to give you a little bit of a a scene, Bible's been happening for a little while so far, um, and uh, you get to Exodus, and God's people are stuck in Egypt under the uh, hand of uh, nasty Pharaoh, and uh, he's uh, not making it very nice for them. And a little while before, like about 80 years before, this man, Moses, baby, had been born. And uh, he had somehow been, although he was born as a Hebrew, brought up in the palace of uh, the Pharaoh, which is quite a fancy thing to do. Not everyone gets to do that. Uh, and then uh, he had fled away, uh, and there's a, more of the story you can read there, Exodus uh, 2 and uh, so on. Uh, and he's actually in the desert in Midian, and the last 40 years he's been looking after sheep, which, well, isn't the job I would choose to do anyway. Uh, and what happens one day after you know, days of not much happening, one day he sees a bush burning and unlike anything he's seen before this bush is not burning up it's on fire and so he thinks I better go and have a look at this and so he turns aside and God calls to him from this bush Moses Moses take the shoes off your feet Um, the place you're standing is holy ground and that's where the conversation breaks in and we're going to start by reading a bit more this time from Exodus chapter 3 and uh, verse 7 Uh, So what we had read earlier were uh, Moses' third, fourth, and fifth excuses to God. Now we're going to pick up with the first and second. So this is where God makes a commission to Moses. uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Excuse number one. But Moses said to God, and they don't look much like excuses at first, but you can see as you go on that they are excuses. Number one, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that uh, it is um, I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Number two. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what am I to tell them then? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. What 
an amazing conversation. God seems to have been silent for a very long time. And the people of Israel under the oppression in Egypt have been crying out. And God says to Moses, I've heard it. I've taken note. I'm concerned. I'm going to do something about it. In fact, you're going to do something about it. You're going to bring my people out of Egypt. Well, God might commission us to do some things we don't want to do. Um, Might not be something that seems as big as that. But there might be all sorts of tasks that we might have. Uh, tasks to be faithful witnesses to people that God's put around us who are not going to hear the gospel unless they hear it from us. Or it might be to step up to some uh, new challenge, something we don't want to do. And we notice here where Moses begins with uh, answering back to God. Uh, Verse 11, who am I? Well, that's a really good question, Moses. Um, You are probably the only Hebrew who's actually spent time, a lot of time, in the palace. So in terms of someone who can represent the Hebrews and actually go to the palace to speak to Pharaoh, you're about as good as it gets. And, you know, uh, you've had life and experience. So, yeah, that's who you are. Um, God could have answered like that, and it would have been uh, very uh, legitimate. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the uh, Israelites out of Egypt? But this is what God says. I will be with you. So we could think, uh, when we think about those tasks that God might have for us, um, challenges we don't want to do, who am I? Well, the answer is, you're probably amongst the most privileged people on the planet. Uh, You've had 13, 14 years of education, just got to 18, and some of you have had a lot more than that. You've had all all the resources, the wealth that we have living in our society. Who are you? Someone with a vast amount of privilege. But... More important than that, who are you? The one that God will be with. When Christ sent his followers out, Matthew 28, on the Great Commission, his words are, behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. When he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, he says, there I am in the midst. So the key thing about us is not what privileges we have, and and they're vast, right? But actually, something far more fundamental, something far bigger, we're not actually on our own. And we're not just not on our own, we have God with us. What an amazing thing. So whatever the task is, the thought that God is with us in that task is just transformational. It makes all of the difference. It may seem absolutely impossible for us, or it may look possible for us. But the key thing is we need God with us. We can't rely on our own experience, not even uh, time at Pharaoh's court. He needs God with him. And then God adds something further, which is rather strange, isn't it? Because he said, and this will be the sign that is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. Well, that's not much of a sign, is it? It's like a retrospective sign that the mission is the mission you're supposed to go on. Like it's when it's successful, then you'll know it was the right mission to be on. Why does God do it like that? But it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's not that God hasn't already shown a lot to Moses. He's shown a bush that isn't burning. He's called out to Moses. He knows his name. So Moses already got a lot of evidence to go on that God's going to be doing something special and God's going to be with him. But there's also this other thing. that Some of the best evidence 
that God is with you in something comes in hindsight, comes afterwards. And the best form, absolutely, is worship. Worship is amazing evidence for God. When we are worshipping, we see his hand. And that is the evidence that he's given. He's told, got some more, you've got some evidence already, but this is a sign you're going to see at the end. You're going to worship in the very place where you've been working out, you know, feeding your sheep. That's where the whole people are going to be worshipping me. Okay, so Moses has another go. <clears throat> Yeah, but what about name? I mean, have we got names here? You know my name. Uh, what's yours? I don't quite know enough for this job, right? I need some information. I need to know some theology in order to do this. I need to have studied. I need to, and so on. Well, what does God say in answer to this? Well, it is an incredible answer. What's your name? I am who I am. That's my name. That is a pretty unique name. That is, God is saying, I am self-existent. I don't depend on anyone else. I don't get my being from anyone else. And it's sort of like the way, the way the, it works. The tense is, was, is, and is to come. Oh yeah, that's sort of like picked up in the book of Revelation. That's what he's saying. He is the eternal one who has always been there and will always be there. And he exists independent of anyone else. Now, that is unlike any being you will ever encounter. Every single one of us is on the created side of the equation. There's one creator, and then there's the created side of the equation. That, that's us. Every single one of us. And here, the one who is uncreated, who is self-existent, who defines being, who gives life to others, that's the one who's talking to Moses. But then do you notice something really strange? Look at chapter 3, verse 13, 14, and then look at verse 15. God gives himself actually two names, not just one. I am who I am, and notice how he says, this is what you're to say to the Israelites in verse 14, I am as sent me to you. So you've got the say to the Israelites and sent me to you. Exactly the same phrases occur in the next verse, right? Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So why Moses asked for one name, he gets two. And they're quite different names. Because one is saying God is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anyone else. He's there before anyone else exists. There is no one else. Back in eternity... Farther back than, you know, our minds can imagine, we could, which is not very far. I mean, like, but he just go back, back, back all the time. The only one who's always existed, I am who I am. And then he says, oh, I'm also the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What an absurd name. I mean, how can the, the God who is so big name himself after three normal-sized blokes? Really? Abraham, think who he is. He trusts in God, but he doubts God. He, he gets so much wrong, he ends up a bigamist. Isaac, he's pretty passive. Jacob, trickster. I am the God of trickster. 
I mean, like, how can God call himself that? But he does again and again and again. I can't think of any analogy for this. So, so just, these are going to be really bad analogies. But imagine like King Charles taking as a, a permanent um, sort of way he describes himself, defines himself, just three ordinary subjects and saying, I'm the king of, you know, and that. Imagine like Taylor Swift just taking three of her fans, randos, right, and just defining herself every time this is a brand. She's going to take that into a brand. Yeah, Swifty and... I mean, just... What? Okay, and that's just humans, right? Part of it, the whole point is, God is just immensely above that, so that's why I can't actually do an analogy, right? That God, who is self-existent and made everyone, should divine define himself by three, these three particular pretty imperfect individuals, right? I mean, read their stories in Genesis if you want to be convinced that they're actually imperfect. God defines himself in these covenant relationship with these three people he pledges to be faithful to and to bless. And it's amazing what's happened through him blessing these individuals and so many other people blessed through that it's extraordinary so God is transcendent above everything and defines himself in covenant relationship with specific individuals and by the way that includes us what an extraordinary God there's something that we see throughout the Bible God's above all and yet he comes down to earth in Christ or in Ephesians 4 the prayer Paul reports where he says I bow my knees before the Father. Well, you don't, I mean, do any of you bow your knees when you're talking to your dad? No, you bow your knees before a king, don't you? But I bow my knees before the Father, there's the intimacy and the majesty. And he's just going run throughout the Bible. So this is why God's got two aspects we need to understand. That transcendence and the imminence. The, the, the closeness and the grandeur, it's, it's mind-blowing. And, and people can get fixated on one of those and lose the fact that we need to see both. So that's the one who is appearing to Moses. Okay, go and tell them that. That's my, that's my name. And he, he's told then at the end of chapter 3, go and get them all together and uh, tell them, They've got to um, come out and worship me. Go, go, go to Moses and, sorry, go to Pharaoh and uh, ask to be um, able to go out of Egypt. In fact, uh, what they're to request to um, Moses, and this is often not noted in chapter 3, verse 18, is a three-day journey, not a permanent time out of Egypt, just for the sake of worship. So start with a small request. Okay, let's get on to chapter 4. <clears throat> chapter 4, okay, Excuse number three. Uh, what if they, that is the Israelites, don't believe me? Okay. So God's got an answer to this. Um, what's in your hand? Now, I know that can look like quite a patronizing question because he's not got much in his hand and it's, it's a stick, like a question a two-year-old could answer. So what's in your hand? Well, a stick. Doesn't seem very deep, does it? I mean, why are you even asking? You can see what's in my hand. You can see I've got something. It's a stick. Ha-ha. <laughs> you think it's a stick. That thing you have in your hand is whatever God wants it to be in your hand. (laughs) 
right? You don't need to look any further. Moses says, look, I need some evidence to back me up. <laughs> look, what's in your hand? Well, it's a stick. Okay, throw it down. Now, we don't know how long Moses had this stick. Pretty useful thing for a shepherd. You can steer your sheep with him, might fight off a wild animal, use it just walking along up hills and so on. Great, like your basic tool. What is it? You think, oh, stick, I know this thing. I know this thing. I've been carrying this for ages. What is it? Ah, throw it down. No, it's not a stick. It's a snake. Ah, run away from it. So God can give life to something that's dead like that. Now, snakes are pretty significant for Egypt. Um, go down to the Fitzwilliam Museum. Got a little challenge for you. Um, go into the Egyptology rooms. See how many snakes you can count. You're going to stop counting pretty soon. I mean, one of the amazing things they've got there, the, the actual lid of Ramses III's tomb. Wow. Snakes around it. Like, just everywhere. It's just snakes. Pretty big. Snakes, dangerous things. Uh, and then God sort of breaks health and safety protocol. I've not done snake handling. Anyone here done snake handling? No. I'm told you're supposed to really hold them just behind the head. Like it makes a sense, doesn't it? You know, because the jaw stuff. Hold it by the tail. You know, snake's bendy. Got mouth. Hold it by the tail. What's going to happen? Not a good idea. Don't try it at home. But it just becomes a stick again. God can protect Moses. That's sign number one. Now, God's going to give three signs, like, you know, two or three witnesses to attest something. Sign number one, it's actually a double sign, so that's pretty generous. This is the most generous allowance of signs anyone ever gets in the Bible, right? Number two, okay, we're still dealing with a hand. Okay, what's in your hand? Let's actually go to the hand itself. Okay, stick it inside. Oh, leprosy. Take it, put it back in. All gone. Wow, that was smart. You thought... It was like your hand. Now, this is the thing. It's not just about your hand. It's about my hand. Look, this is what he says. I will stretch out my hand. Chapter 3, verse 20. You see, God has power over everything you have and over you yourself. So to say that I'm unequipped, no, that just simply doesn't work. God can give you whatever equipment. God can give you whatever evidence he wants. And if those two... Um, miracles aren't enough, there's a spare, we don't need to actually perform it right now, but there's a spare one, if you get water from the Nile, Nile's pretty big in Egypt, pretty important, like without Nile, not really much Egypt is there, Um, the water brings life, pour it out on the ground and become blood, okay, so you've got a spare, now go off and say, okay, now Moses isn't done with this, Uh, he's still got more reasons why he shouldn't be doing this, Uh, and so um, he actually has uh, something else. So let, let's, let's go there to uh, verse 10. Um, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent. Moses. <coughs> Moses. Now, what does he get famous for? Moses. Moses says he's not eloquent. The guy who's credited with more of the Bible than anyone else, than David, Jeremiah, Luke. Moses, not eloquent. Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 22, powerful in word and deed. Um, By the way, you've got an Egyptian education. You can speak Hebrew. Um, You're not eloquent. Oh, yes, dear Moses. (sighs) But it's easy to make these excuses. Oh, I couldn't possibly say anything. I can't, like, speak to my friends because I don't know what words I would say. Friends, we say, like, tens of thousands of words per day, most of us. 
we have you know, lots of vocabulary, lots of experience, can't say anything. Look, we've got loads of evidence. You don't need to go any further than your hand. Your hand is enough evidence for God. Your heart beats enough evidence for God. Sunrise is enough evidence for God. We know the stories of Jesus. Tell me we don't know what to say. We can't go as your ambassadors, God, because we're not equipped. No, you absolutely are equipped. And here is Moses, Moses of all people, saying, um, I'm not eloquent. Well, God has an answer to this. Um, Who made your mouth? Who makes any mouth? God. Who makes people able to speak or not? See or not? Hear or not? Um, That's God. Um, So don't try that one on me. And by the way, I'm going to help you speak and teach you what you should say. At this point, Moses ties number five, which is a really a bit desperate and isn't even an excuse. It's like, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> is there anyone else God could send? Yes, an infinite number of beings. He can create any being he wants anytime. He can send, send some angels, got plenty of those. He can make some more humans. So who's to do that task that God has put in front of you? God could get anyone to do it, but he just wants you to do it. Right? It's because he wants you to do it. It's not that he can't do it without you. He can do anything without you. But he actually wants you to do this task in front of you. So, now at this point it does say, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Now, you know, we sang earlier, Psalm 145, the Lord is slow to anger. That's the key thing. It's not that he never gets angry, but like it's after the fifth reply... And, and, you know, he's really pretty un- unwilling. God is angry. Now, you've got to understand that God's not someone who, like, flares up with anger. He's irascible, moody, like us. Like, uh, you know, Tuesday, angry day, whatever it is. No, there's nothing like that. It's rather the relationship with we stand it to him and his, his commands, if that makes sense. It's as we move that you see his displeasure with certain things. And at this point, Moses is incurring God's displeasure. But God still is gracious. He's angry, but even then, he's still supplying. He says, look, you've got a brother Aaron. Oh, by the way, he's already on the way. God had foreseen this. It's an interesting thing, actually. You can see at the end of um, chapter 2 that uh, Israelites are in trouble. Chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That's at the end of chapter 2, which is all about how God's preparing Moses to be the person who's going to help, by God's grace with this situation. So in other words, God's already prepared the answer to prayer before you prepare it. You pray. That's how amazing God is. So uh, Moses was really trying it on. Aaron, he can speak well. He's already on his way. He'll be glad to see you. You can speak to him. You can put words in the mouth. I'm going to put the words in your mouth. You're going to put them in his mouth. By the way, I'm going to be with both of you, not just with you or just with him. I like... The whole thing's taken care of. Oh, by the way, remember to take the staff with you, uh, which gets very soon is going to be called the staff of God. Because God was giving Moses everything he needed. 
Okay, so that's about Moses. What about us? God's called us, most obviously, to go and tell people about him. And it's a scary thing. Not as scary, probably, as going to talk to Pharaoh. That's good, isn't it? But he's called us to be faithful, to have those awkward conversations, to be faithful witnesses in our work, to be faithful in the choices we make. And he's going to be with us. God's so gracious that even when we do things which cause his, bring his displeasure, he's still preparing things that will help us. This is the God who is over everything in the universe, who also entered into the suffering in the person of Christ to redeem us. Just finally, let's think about Christ in relation to these five excuses. Who am I? Well, you're God himself, and you've come into the world for us. What's your name? You are the one who is, was and is and is to come, coming to redeem us. What's in your hand? What shall I say? Are people going to believe? Christ's hands were pierced for us. People rejected but many believed. And if they don't believe, the evidence is still there. Pardon your servant, I'm not eloquent. This is the word of God himself who came, became flesh. And he said many things, he taught many things, but also at a key point he was absolutely silent, not to defend himself before accusation, and he was condemned as a sinner, condemned as a criminal, and put to death for us. And he never said, oh, please, will you send someone else? He was the only one who volunteered. There's a wonderful scene in the book of Revelation. Who's worthy to open the seal? There's only one worthy to open the seals. It's the Lamb. Jesus Christ, who volunteered. He didn't shirk the, 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 the task. He actually came and did it all for us. So even as we see Moses making these excuses, and maybe we can see a bit of a mirror there about how we make excuses, let's think about how Christ himself made no excuses and he did everything for us.